Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Dawn Porter, and my dilemma is what to wear on all the different things I have to do in my life. I'm a mom, I'm a wannabe tennis player, I'm a documentary filmmaker, sometimes I'm on TV, and sometimes I just don't feel like getting out of my sweatpants. So I have a clothing dilemma at this time in life. Oh, well, this isn't even much of a dilemma because you're in luck. I mean, athleisure is more popular than ever because all the companies know that we've we've just gotten used to wearing soft pants. I mean, who's choosing jeans and hard pants right now unless it's absolutely required? Um, and you could still like look professional. Just throw a blazer over a t-shirt with some comfy kind of more tailored wide leg pants. Or, I mean, if you're doing TV and it's just your top half, just rock a cool blouse. Don't even bother changing out of those pajama pants at Zoom. No one's judging. We're all with you on this one. That's what she said. I'm Nicole Noonan, and um, my dilemma is that post the height of the pandemic, I have like a really, really pent up wanderlust and want to travel. And I've also become completely addicted to staying home. I mean, both of you, you couldn't be more relatable. I think we're all feeling this way. And I'm actually, I've booked my first trip back to Europe since the pandemic began. I'm very excited, but also definitely stressing about how much I'm going to miss my dogs for those two weeks. Um, I've basically been glued to them for two years, even more so than I was before, which was a lot. So I'm definitely going to be the weirdo who's somewhere beautiful in Switzerland and like sitting on my phone looking at pictures of my dogs instead of some gorgeous mountain view. (laughs) But we do have to get back out there because obviously as amazing as home is and comforts and books and, and conversations with friends in your backyard and all that, the world is worth going to see. It is huge and magical and safely. We need to get back out and see as much of it as we can. So find that balance, Nicole. And also if you have pets, you know, find a pet sitter that will send you lots of videos while you're gone. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Um, This is part of my continuing couple weeks of talking about Title IX related stuff. And ESPN is doing a month long celebration of the anniversary of Title IX, 50 years. So keep an eye out for content across all the different networks and platforms. Even the Disney parks are doing some stuff. You could check out the amazing 30 for 30 Dream On about the 96 women's basketball dream team and how their success really gave the NBA the confidence to launch the WNBA. That's available streaming now, and you can probably find re-airs of it uh, across ESPN as well on TV. And then starting tonight, if you're listening to this podcast right when it drops on Tuesday, the 21st of June, 37 words, incredible four-part doc on the passage of Title IX the hard-fought battle to push for equal rights in education and athletics, the decades-spanning efforts to nullify it and to keep it strong, depending on your side, and all of the impacts of the law that continue to resonate today and that we have to continue fighting for. It's really a remarkable documentary. Tonight, parts one and two, 37 words, ESPN, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And then Tuesday, June 28th, will be parts three and four. Again, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. It's called 37 words. So watch it, DVR it, talk about it, tell everyone. It's fantastic stuff. Today on the podcast, I've got the directors of that film. Man, did I love talking to them. Just brilliant, 
smart, interesting. I love the idea of what they do for a living. It's like find something that fascinates you or that you have questions about or that you wonder about how things got the way they are and go start digging in and tell the story. Uh, it's it's awesome. And I love talking to them about the early brainstorming around what to include in the doc, the stories of unsung female heroes like Olympic sprinter Wyoming Atias and badass basketballer machine gun Molly Bolin. Uh, how they attended the film's premiere, and those women finally got their flowers, some of the women featured in the doc. It was really cool to peek into their process, and boy, did ESPN grab two super accomplished filmmakers for this. Uh, Dawn Porter, founder of production company Trilogy Films. She graduated um, Swarthmore College and then Georgetown University Law School. She was an attorney and then became a filmmaker. Her directorial debut was the award-winning Gideon's Army. More recently, she did John Lewis, Good Trouble, and The Way I See It. Really great, highly awarded filmmaker. Uh, Nicole Noonan, the other uh, producer, writer, director known for her Oscar-nominated movie Crip Camp. Uh, she co-directed and produced that, and it was an uh, award-winning, magical film. She also um, was uh, in charge of the multi-Emmy-nominated film The Rape of Europa. She got her M.A. from the Stanford Documentary Film Program also many times over awarded filmmaker. So I really think you're going to love this conversation with them. That's what she said. If you are listening to this podcast, the moment that we put it out, tonight is the night, the first night for the first part of 37 Words. You'll get one and two tonight. You'll get three and four next week. And if you're listening to this after the fact, feel free to listen anyway and learn all the amazing things that went into the creation of this four-part film, um, which I love so much. And I can't wait to dig into the process because looking back at 50 years of Title IX, no doubt provides plenty of stories to tell, um, accomplishments and celebrations, um, potential disasters and frustrations, and all of it needs to happen in just four parts. And to bring together the two women that made that happen is so thrilling. Before we get to 37 words, uh, Nicole, let's just start with a bit of your background. Um, I know Stanford is where you cut your teeth for filmmaking, but uh, what are some of the things you've worked on and focused on before you got to this project? Yeah, I started out with an idea that it would be could be important to look at injustices in history and how they relate to things that I saw that were still problems in the current day. And so I've looked at everything from um, the deportation of Cambodian American kids back to Cambodia following 9-11 to um, what happened to Europe's art and culture during World War II. Um, and most recently I worked on a film called Crip Camp about um, the kind of untold story of how um, affinity groups and summer camps played a role in bringing together disabled teenagers and um, helping them to see that the problems that they were facing were structural and sparking the disability uh, rights movement, yeah. which led to the ADA. That one in particular, um, Oscar nominated, uh, well talked about by just a couple people like, I don't know, Barack Obama and such. So um and then, and then I believe Rape of Europa was the one about art, right? And that was a uh, uh, multiple Emmy nominated as well. Yeah. I kind of looked at your bio and I don't, have you ever made a movie that wasn't nominated for an Emmy? <laughs> I have, believe or me, two. I have. Okay, I'm yeah. going to find that one and <laughs> nitpick it because the other ones are clearly, it's just your, your, your work is, is, is incredibly well received and well awarded. Uh, speaking of that, John Porter, let's hear about the things that brought you here. Swarthmore and Georgetown Law School, which I loved because you're the second filmmaker in just a couple of weeks on this podcast who is a reformed lawyer turned documentarian. <laughs> and actually, um, 
Mary Mazio, who who made the film about the Yale crew team, much of which sort of became a part of the story that you told in 37 words, also a reformed lawyer. So you come you come with it for an eye, presumably for uh, things that need to be fixed, addressed, debated, changed, I presume. There are uh, a lot of us. We have support <laughs> meetings in secret. Yeah. A lot of people in sports too, sports agents or sports analysts who are like, I'm just going to argue about something else over here. <laughs> um, you know, I was a lawyer before I was a filmmaker and um, I was really interested in, um, I'm a black woman and I was, I was, I started making films around the time that reality and I'm doing the air quotes um, right now, but that reality television was getting very popular, but it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and I thought um, there were stories that I would like, I thought that the real life was actually more interesting than the, the constructed um, TV reality. So, you know, and then I, I am attracted to legal topics. I am attracted to, kind of helping to explain how the law really does impact all of us very significantly in ways that we do see and that we don't see. So my first film was a film called Gideon's Army and it was about three young public defenders working in the deep South and uh, followed them for three years as they tried to, they just tried to do their jobs, you know? And um, it was a really eye-opening experience to travel with them in criminal court across the country. Multiple award winning as well. No big whoop for your directorial debut. Um, more recently, some some great ones. John Lewis, Good Trouble. Uh, the way I see it about um, Pete Souza, the former chief official White House photographer, who many of us I think follow on social and, and know from from his photographs and his work. Um, just really starting to understand why the folks at ESPN came to you both, because it is this intersection of civil rights issue that which is what title nine is a law for and also how policy making and lawmaking can change the future for a group of people i mean um what you said about crip camp is so perfectly shadowed in in the ways that title nine changed the future for all of the women and girls that came to follow um so let's start there when people came and approached you how did that work. Let's start with you, Don. What were the first inklings of a Title IX project that that you might be involved with? Um, so ESPN came to me, I guess it's two years ago now in the summer, and said um, they wanted to make a big deal about the, the 50th anniversary. And so, you know, that's a good way to lead, right? Mm-hmm. Like we want to we wanna do something for the women. Um, so that immediately intrigued me. And they didn't quite have, um, they weren't settled on what that was gonna be. They knew they wanted to have some kind of big documentary element, but they weren't settled. And that, to tell you the truth, that's the second thing that was really intriguing because when you've got this blank slate and that's when you can really create and that's when you can really. So we did, you know, I've worked with a producer and we just started poking around at some of the history and and just all, it was like the floodgates opened. All this un, you know, told history and this little known history started coming. And then when we realized it really should be multi-parts, you know, I don't think that was their original plan, <laughs> um, but we were like, there's a lot of girls. You said um, big. <laughs> you said big. Get me more money, resources, and time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, so then the possibility for a multi-part was really intriguing. And that's when I reached out to Nicole and I thought I've admired her work, as you said, for so long, because what Nicole does so exquisitely 
is she can tell the big story in a really intimate way and have you focus on people and not objects. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the kind of person I, I really wanted to work with. And I had just, I just knew her personally and I knew she's just a nice person. And like my, my new rule, like for, for work, particularly post pandemic, but, but like, I'm really committed to it now is no assholes. Yeah. So I was like, you know, you have to like, just work though. I have that in life as well. I, I've just, I just a no assholes rule across all things. I should get to it in life, but Working I started with, with work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like when you make a movie, it's consuming and you spend a lot of time and there's a lot of stuff that, that even if you're directing, it gets out of your control. Mm. People aren't available. Networks have crazy notes or you don't have enough money or you don't have enough time or you have, or there's a pandemic or there's a global <laughs> plague. Yes. Um, so you want the, you want to choose the people that you're going to go through that journey with who, mm -hmm. you know, are going to do their best to put it all on the screen, to make it not about them and to make it about the movie. And so, you know, Nicole was literally the perfect partner and she's such a strong filmmaker that I could also relax in knowing I had such a strong partner um, in doing this. And so I, I think it was just really fun for me to be able to have that experience. I never co-directed before. Nicole, you were the first. I, you won't be the last because you've made it seem like, okay, it's possible, but, um, but you, you are my first. I bar maybe. Yeah. I bar. Yeah. Now you know. Yeah. I love hearing that because there were questions that I had about, I, I mean, I just think about how much work is done before you decide what makes the cut and making that decision with someone else, including the networks and the participants and everybody else who's got to say in it, but you're really in charge. If you're the director, when you have a co-director, you're both in charge and you have to agree on a lot of that stuff. So it's good. You knew each other. It's good that you chose her instead of being assigned someone to work alongside that. Perhaps you thought I could do this on my own. Thank you very little. Um, <laughs> so Nicole, when she gives you a call, what's your thought about the project and, and the idea of co-directing? I was really excited for a number of reasons. I mean, um, and and chief among them was Don. Uh, it's it's really true. Like I I hadn't thought that much about Title IX, um, which was intriguing to me. Just having finished a film that's you know basically about the origins of the ADA, which is another you know civil rights law, which which changed the world in ways that people haven't really thought about. Like how did that come to be? Who who did yeah. it? Who insisted on it? What was it like before but, that? Know, how did it evolve from just right. being like a law in the books to, to actual change? And um, and I was a little um, awestruck that there was this other major story hiding in plain sight like that, you know, that I hadn't thought about and that I was a recipient of, you know, it was a part of my own life story and I still hadn't really thought that much about it. So I was really intrigued by that. And I was really excited about Dawn because I think that Don and I share um, kind of uh, like a, a refusal to accept that entertainment has to be dumbed down and that, um, and that really good historical or, or social justice filmmaking can't kind of be both things. Like 100%. I, I don't think either of us are comfortable with talking down to people. And if we're gonna take on a topic that's complex, um, which we're drawn to. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I really see in Dawn's work like this just, you know, um, beautiful way of kind of like 
taking the audience up to a higher level of understanding that is actually useful in the real world because you're really understanding like what a law is, how it works, you know, what are all the com- complexities of it? And, right. um, and at the same time being like really passionate and entertaining and human and, and, um, and also a, a caretaking for the subject, like a respect for the subject um, which is, you know, very humanistic and, and, um, and coming from like, I, I think like a very kind of reverential place about right. like some complex humanity. And so all of those things are actually not that common, um, and <laughs> to find in one filmmaker. And, uh, and so I was, I was super excited to tackle a topic this rich and this untouched, um, right. with, with someone who is so extraordinary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Were you guys both athletes? I wasn't. <laughs> no, okay. So neither of you, Th- this is perfect actually. Cause what I was going to say is someone like me, I-, I-, I played sports my entire life, three sport in college, in high school, track and field in college, became a sports reporter. It is so clear to me that I would be a completely different human being without title nine, yeah. because not only did it allow participation, but once women can participate, then they become knowledgeable, then they become passionate about, then they become included, then they become hired and a part of a workforce that talks about and engages and analyzes. None of that happens without first allowing for that participation that drives passion. But when you said something that affected me, I thought, oh, I wonder if she means just as any girl or woman, or if she means as an athlete, because that's what we don't often talk about with Title IX, is that it is a civil rights and education law. So mm-hmm. if you are a girl or woman who went to school ever at any level, even if you stopped after eighth grade, your life was changed by Title IX. And so I love in this movie having to balance, let's tell these sports stories, it's an ESPN film, with let's tell stories of harassment and how that affects your education experience. Let's tell stories about the breadth of the law. And that leads me to a question about approach. This is not only you have to tell the origins, but you're kind of tackling the 50 years since, since it's a celebration of the anniversary. So Nicole, how do you decide which parts are the most important to tell um, when you're tackling a law like this? Yeah, well, I think, I think we just, you said it very well. I mean, I think, I think we, we, we both felt from the very beginning and along with our, you know, these amazing producers, um, Claire Marish and Camille Servan-Schreiber that we were working with and a whole extraordinary team that Don built and which I got to just kind of insert myself in, <laughs> into, and it was mostly women. Um, so that was kind of quite a, a new thing for me, actually, to be in a team that's led by women, made Love up of women working on a, a project about women's history. Um, but uh, 
but I think from the very beginning, it seemed like if people don't really know what Title IX is, and that's actually like a huge social liability, like for, for girls to go to high school and not know that Title IX is a law that mm-hmm. can protect them from sexual harassment and mm-hmm. or for, for girls to go to elementary school and not know that if like they're, they, they don't have the equipment or the gear or the fields or whatever that they need to play sports or they're not fully participating that they can challenge that is really a, a disservice. And so we felt like we really needed to, to present a holistic view of it. And Don said that to me from the very beginning in our first phone call, like this is going to be like a real civil rights look at this. And actually ESPN's down on board with that. And I was like, really, really? It took me a long time <laughs> to believe that that was true. And I kept thinking like, do we have to like put some more sports in here? And, um, and you know, uh, sounds like my career at ESPN sometimes I'm like, yeah, and sports. Wait, let me get back to the stuff I'm yeah. really interested in <laughs> right. and these social issues that I really want to talk about. But sportsy. <laughs> what was so cool is that I had never really fully appreciated the kind of synergy between activism and athletics, you 100%. know, and, and now, I, now I feel like that was really silly of me not to see that, but just to just to see like, oh, there's a reason why this revolution like fomented really powerfully amongst women on athletic teams, because, you know, you get a bunch of people together and they're strong and competitive and they respect mm-hmm. each other and they have each other's backs. Um, and it's a space you know? where there's a clear delineation between genders. And, yeah. you know, as we talk about trans issues so much in the world, so much of it centers on sport because there are not that many spaces left where we literally separate boys and girls. And when you do that, it makes the contrast quite stark. Yeah. And Don, I know you learned that from the filmmaking and choosing some of the stories to tell the story of the girls who had to fight for a softball field. I mean, that woman should win some <laughs> giant prize for being at that school for what, 20 plus years, sopping up mud, uh, cleaning up dog shit so that her kids could play while the boys are playing on this brand new field stories like that, where it's so obvious, but not yeah. understanding title nine or the power that we have back to your point with needing to be intentional because it's such a um, reactive law instead of proactive results in all those stories that people don't, don't know that they can fight for. But Don, when you, when you're telling those stories um, you're providing examples for probably thousands of examples across the country where that same thing is happening. You know, that that's what one thing that, that I really appreciate um, from title nine now that we've gone through this, you know, journey, understanding the impact of the law is how simple it is. It literally is 37 words that say you can't discriminate against women and girls in education. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so the way that Title IX was formed was through battles. It was through people saying, okay, if the goal is equality, what, what interrupts that? And so what interrupts that is you don't have equal facilities. Okay, that's easy. Got it. But also, what if you're harassed in mm-hmm. school? Well, that interrupts your education. You mm-hmm. can't go to school. <laughs> you can't learn if your stomach is in a knot because you're worried that somebody is going to, you know, physically assault you at school. So what one of the things that we see in Title IX is every way that equality is threatened, Title IX has something to say about that. And so it's only limited by the imagination of the people Mm -hmm. who are interested in equality. And so like, as a lawyer, like that is the most elegant of laws, Mm, Yes, (laughs) right? Because it's, it's saying like, what do you, how do you think equality is being interrupted? Let's test that. Let's, let's make that claim. Um, So 
you know, we just saw story after story. And that's what we tried to do in the series, you know, to your earlier question about how to, how did we choose is, you know, as Nicole was saying, we needed to be grounded in what the law is. How did it come to be? That's a great story about women you've never heard of mm-hmm. who started this whole journey and it's still around 50 years and, and still it's so robust. cool to see them when they're like 21 on film yes. for some other project talking about how badass they are and how they're fighting shit. And then like 50 years later, they're like 70 something. And there they are. And you're like, that's her again. Like, exactly. so cool. And they are having a watch party for this. And they're all, they have a, a newsletter, you know, mm, and they're hosting all these events. So, but you know, the other thing is, and I was thinking about, you know, the fact that I wouldn't say I was an athlete. But when I was in college in the late 80s, um, I could be. So I like walked on to the softball team. I wasn't very good, but I wasn't terrible. And, you know, it. the reason I did that is because I saw all these strong girls around me. All the people I was admiring, a lot of them were on teams. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that experience. And if there was no Title IX, that wouldn't have been open to me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what I got from, from that, you know, and then, you know, somebody pointed out to me when you went to law school before title nine, there were quotas yep. about mm-hmm. women, how many could mm-hmm. go to law school. When I got to law school, the class was 50% women. So in some ways, title nine has affected people in ways that they don't know. And like, as Abby Wambach said to us, that's a good thing. They don't know right. anything else but in some places, but equality in some circumstances. So, you know, one of the things I really, really, really love about the series is we're not, we all know how much more there is to do for women and for equality, but there's also a lot that has happened. And along the way, people, once you get a taste of freedom and power, it doesn't just stop on a field. It translates into the classroom, into the workplace, into your marriage where you're like, I am a strong person with an individual desires. And I, I can, I can think about that. I can be strong physically so and mentally. And, you know, in and that's present. what all the statistics show. Um, 94% of women in the C-suite at fortune 500 companies participated in sports at some point. It's this incredible teaching for leadership and teamwork and mm-hmm. everything else. You, you, you said a couple things in there that really stood out to me. And, you know, one of them is looking at these small groups of women and what they were able to accomplish by coming together in spaces, talking about the ways things didn't feel right, and then acting on them. And so Title IX needs to be both a celebration of that and being able to look across the film and say, oh my gosh, how far have we come? Just some of those clips of the way men used to talk on television and it was totally normal. And I remember it triggered something in me of growing up and how much more normal just misogyny and institutionalized systemic sexism was and how much that conditioned us to believe things about ourselves that we have had to grow and learn out of and really relearn to see ourselves as equals because for so long growing up, society told us we weren't. So even looking back at that and thinking, oh shit, you could not say that today. You would be not canceled because no one really gets canceled. They just get held accountable and then they come back and win awards and make more money if they're a dude, but you would get (laughs) accused of being canceled for saying things like that. And so that kind of growth is huge and you need to inspire people to take action and make change of their own by watching that. But also 50 years later, compliance is shit 
87% of universities don't have participatory sports opportunities for girls equal to their enrollment. So 50 years later, the law in some places is just the spirit of it and not, you know, the letter of it and not the spirit of it. And so I wonder, you know, when you're telling these stories, Nicole, how much you wanted to be celebratory and how much you wanted to remind people that it's tenuous and it can be chipped away at. Yeah. I mean, I really like what you were just saying about the fact that, you know, those two, those two things go hand in hand, really. Like it's partially by making people aware of how change actually did happen. And the fact that like individual people and small groups of people made it happen, that you make people then make a leap to like, oh God, and look where we are now and what, and here's what we need to do and see that as not just an abstract concept, but something that they could actually engage in and actually do. And I think that's kind of partially the enterprise of trying to make a film like this, that's sort of a civil rights film about history. But, you know, for instance, like I, we were really excited about being able to look at the history of Title IX and realize that like the, the woman who's responsible for the use of the term sexual harassment, which didn't even exist, mm-hmm. you know, prior to the early 70s, and the woman who coined the term date rape for the first time were both women who were behind the first legal case, which proved that sexual harassment was a violation of Title IX. And that came out of Yale University, and it, mm-hmm. and it was generated by students at Yale um, working with amazing kind of radical lawyers like Catherine McKinnon, the, the amazing feminist. And, um, you know, Anne Olivarius, who was the student at Yale who kind of instigated the lawsuit originally, tells this story of going to a conference at that time and saying to a group of women, like, how many of you have been raped? And no one raises their hand. And she says, how many of you just has this like flash of inspiration and says, how many of you have been date raped? And like two thirds of the women raise their hand. And she realizes I have a powerful term here. And I think it's like, I think it's in telling those kinds of stories that you make younger women realize like, oh, you know, like we can, Mm -hmm. we can actually kind of um, play a role in reinventing how things are even thought about in the future. And so by going through those stories in history and then kind of choosing to land the final episode really in the here and now with all of these different things that are, that are playing out, some of which are, are the same, really the same story all over again. Like, mm-hmm. you know, girls, the high school the girls, field, right. you know, yeah. but or the high schoolers with the harassment who with the are harassment. right back there again. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways we're right back there again, but I think in other ways, what we tried to show is the sort of standing on shoulders. Oh, of course. yeah. No, I mean, I can't imagine even first of all, having a women's group at my high school and then having that group exactly. be proactively and bravely talking about their own harassment in large rooms of people and fighting back. I mean, that showed incredible growth from the early days. Yeah. But the, but the problem still being right. really entrenched yes. and, and, and yeah, I mean, we talked about that all the time. Like we don't want to leave people despairing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because in fact, a lot of change has happened, but it, but we wanted people to leave really activated and excited to try to be a part of continuing the fight. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what's your favorite word? Possible. Nicole? Glee. Okay. Glee. The Old English uh, is where it came from, meaning entertainment, mirth, often in music, like Glee Club, I guess, is where that came from. Uh, Jest, play, sport, uh, also sometimes mockery. Uh, It was related probably to a group of Germanic words that started with GL that meant shining, smooth, radiant, joyful, uh, from the root G-H-E-L, which meant to shine. 
Glee was a poetry word in Old English and Middle English and then became sort of obsolete from 1500 to 1700, but somehow made its way back around late 18th century. Glee. Love it. Uh, possible. That which may be capable of existing, occurring, or being done. From the mid-14th century, from Old French, possible, and directly from Latin, possibilis. That can be done. Possible is a fantastic favorite word. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is smitten. And this word came up in conversation the other day. We were trying to figure out the past tense. And someone mentioned it might be connected to smite or smote. And I'm like, no, you're not, you're not smited with love. Uh, I was very wrong. You are literally smited with love. Smitten means to be literally struck by love. So yes, smitten, it's the past participle adjective of smite from the mid-13th century, originally meaning struck hard, afflicted, visited with disaster. And then in the 1660s came the sense of inspired with love, which I, I totally makes sense. But I never really connected smite with smitten. I never thought you're literally hit over the head with a blunt object and it is love. I kind of I kind of dig it though. Okay, so in a sentence. The prince chased down the mystery figure on horse, and just as he was about to smite him, he pulled off the foe's mask and discovered instead a beautiful woman with whom he was immediately smitten. I would always prefer that someone is smitten with me instead of smiting me. Now let's get back to the interview. Getting the conversations going to that point of people watching and saying, wait, as I look around, am I getting the things that I've been promised by this law? Is this law working for me or do I need to go tell my story, fight back, et cetera? And I think I, even, even I did a podcast um, that just ran with the AD for Duke and a sports historian and professor and a woman who works at the high school compliance level and really digging into the numbers on how compliance is so terrible has made me want to be a new small group of women. I literally told Nina King from Duke, I want to make a task force and change transparency laws for compliance because too many schools can hide behind saying they're compliant with some prong, never sharing their numbers, never publicly getting outed for not doing it. And I think that's the next step in the law is changing the way it's enforced so that it does serve people better. But that's because of watching you and literally continuing to hear this refrain of small groups of women coming together and making a difference. And what was so cool in the film was watching those women be brought back together. Now, Don, the Yale crew team is one. Um, the, the women who really started the law is another. But can you talk about what it was like to be in those spaces with the women and having them revisit the work they'd done and the, the lives and who they became? Yeah, so, um, you know, I spent time with the, the original kind of writers of the law. And so now they are in their 70s. Um, and they're still close friends and they're still activists. Nicole can tell you about the Yale crew ladies. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of things I was really struck by is this is their version of going to war. Like these are their battleground memories. And so one thing that like really surprised me is they were all like, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea. <laughs> we just knew if we got in a room together, and we started talking and they would literally, you know, there were so few women in Congress at the time. There was, there was, <laughs> there 
there were no female senators. Mm. There were few female, you know, people on the House side. So they would look to um, people who they thought were friendly to women. And then they would try and look at their staffs and say like, okay, she's a real (laughs) feminist. We should invite her, you know, and they just went around and recruited people in order to think, in order to say, we don't like this situation. What can we do tomorrow? Mm. And and so they didn't, you know, and that was really instructive to me. They didn't say, we're going to take down the patriarchy. They said, we're going to try and write a law and get it introduced into committee. Okay, that's an actionable goal. Mm. And when you break really big things, hard things down into actionable goals, there's nothing like seeing that progress and seeing that, that, oh, this is successful. So now we're going to get it into the law. Okay, we did that. Now we're going to get the regulations done. It didn't happen overnight. You know, there were two years between the time the law was passed and the regulations were written, but they didn't, they just were moving forward, you know, and, and that was really, really instructive to me. Um, I think a lot of people today feel like they, and a lot of young women, by the way, feel like they have to know all the answers. Yeah. So I, I mm. love you saying like, let's just go transparency. Law, yeah. No, right? I'm like, let's just start a task force. How does that happen? I'm going to do it. You just, just call <laughs> people. Just call and people. then like, if you get busy and a lot of other people are, are yeah. activated, you've now put that idea in. I'm like, yeah. this is my husband always says, I'm like holding my arm down to not join your task force. Cause like, I, I like, you know, yeah. I need another thing. Like, Oh, I'll be that, calling like, you. Don't, don't worry. You Billy like, Jean, yeah. you know, <laughs> a task force, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Well, like why not just do what Julie Foudy and yes. Verona did and say like, Nope, you're not going to gut title nine today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not today. Gosh, Can I just tell you how <laughs> Foudy is the most humble human alive, by the way. Um, like, and I only really know it soccer wise because I'll talk to her and someone will be talking about how great. And she'll be like, that's cool. And I'm like, Fowdy, speak up. When you were 16, you spent most of the year, like out of school, cause you were already being touted as the next great thing. And you did this, you won all these, you did all this. I had no idea at the peak of her playing. She was also literally arguing in front of Congress on behalf of title nine and becoming, um, you know, a little Billie Jean protege, um, that was the other thing. Gosh, you guys talked about this at the incredible Paley Center exhibit with the with the documentary unveiling um, for the first time and, and the great, cool exhibit surrounding so many of the stories told that as you look back through the film, you're like, man, Billie Jean was everywhere. <laughs> Billie Jean's at the beginning of the law. Billie Jean's in the middle of it. She's there today telling everybody, hey, you've got the power. I mean, Nicole, like, that force right there. And what's amazing to me is Billie Jean knowing at each moment of her life exactly how much to push, what was going to get people moving and not alienated or defensive. And then, you know, she's in some talk shows and people are terribly misogynist and she kind of laughs it off, but also is strong. And then as she gets older, she's more and more like, all right, cracking the whip. Now we've, we're, we've moved on now. We got to ask for more. Um, just incredible to watch at, throughout the film. Yeah. And also like to see her influence um, imprinted on so many of the other people that we talked to, you know, she taught many, many, many of the other women, mm-hmm. either by example or directly by mentoring them and telling them things that they'll never forget, kind of how to come into activism and how to be activists and how to be part of this like 
really kind of community that she's created that's like ever expanding of people who are are, are fighting yeah. this fight. You know, it's it really it really is so moving and extraordinary. And like I think that was one of the most delightful things about this project was to you know when you pull back and you and you get the long view on something you can really see that. You yeah. Know? So to be able to follow her from, you know, this young woman who's being talked about, like you mentioned earlier, like in this horribly sexist way by Howard Cosell, mm-hmm. um, to somebody who's like involved with Angel City, you know, the, the yeah. founding of this like amazing new soccer team and kind of is the glue that's holding everybody together and kind of still the North Star for yeah. so many Unbelievable. people. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Technically, that soccer team is my soccer team's rival. So uh, in order to get equal time, Chicago Red Star, Chicago Red Star, Chicago Red Star. Um, <laughs> also, I will be seeing Billie Jean over the next two days uh, as ESPN celebrates the 10th anniversary of our global sports mentoring with the State Department. So I wasn't surprised to learn that Billie Jean would be there with Dr. Jill <laughs> Biden and everyone. I was like, oh, back again. Of course, Mike, we got to celebrate Title IX every year so I can hang out with Billie Jean more often. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Paley Center exhibit because one of the coolest things about it was a moment, even though it was just a couple hundred people, but a moment for some of the women in this film who came before 24-hour sports networks, NIL money, sponsorship deals, publicity, and were unbelievable athletes and who did the things they did for love of the sport, for empowerment, for their own passion and pride, and then set a path for everyone who came after them, particularly people like me who benefited when the, some of the changes to the bill and enforcement of the bill happened in the 90s, where we really got to see what it was like to be a child of Title IX. Um, Don, just talk about people like Wyoming and Molly and people from the film being there in person to get well-received like that. You know, um, when you make a film, you have this very strained relationship with the subject. Like you do the interview, maybe you film with them a little bit, but then you spend weeks or months with their footage and you mm-hmm. feel like you know them really well. <laughs> when you stare at somebody's footage, you, you're you literally studying them. So, you know, Wyoming, what, what really struck me about her interview was um, she is a person who understands um, that she wasn't celebrated the way that she deserved but she is not bitter. She doesn't linger on that, but she knows it. She also Mm. doesn't brush it off. Mm. And so she was able to talk about her remarkable accomplishments, back-to-back gold medal winner in 64 and 68 and 100 meter, um, how she thought of her own protest by wearing dark shorts in 1968. And as the men are splashed across the papers around the world, and nobody talks about her gold medal win mm-hmm. or her own protest. Um, you know, and what she says in that interview is when, when they got home from the Olympics, her coach said to her, you're not going to be, you can win all the medals in the world. You're not going to be celebrated the way that you should be, but that doesn't take away from your accomplishment. And, and somehow, um, you know, that that's an answer. Um, but it was, it still felt, it felt unbelievable to have her ESPN, I have to say, we were kind of knocked out by what they they did. It was a total surprise to me. I didn't know they were gonna make that big of a deal of it. So essentially they took over the lobby of the Paley Center, floor to ceiling posters of women all around you, interactive exhibits, like just really cool thing. And it's actually still up for people yeah, through July. People can go all, yeah. yeah, 
If you're in New York City, you can go see it. See Serena's tutu and the first sports bra and some of the Tarina's tutu, Billie the, yeah. Jean's first tennis racket yeah. at Wimbledon. Um, just, just you know, the, the a replica of the women's Yale crew team that also went to the Olympics. Those people, Nicole, profiled them in episode two. Um, so for Wyoming, they did something that just floored all of us. There's a floor-to-ceiling picture of the the track athletes and then there are three panels that show her back-to-back gold medal runs um and so she comes in and you know like she looks like your mom like Mm -hmm. she's she's like she's a nice looking woman she's 70 something you know we took her over and when she saw it she just covered her face and had some tears um and joy and so you know what i thought in that moment was as much as she's told herself over the years that it's okay, that I wasn't recognized, it's okay. Um, having this moment, it's not okay. And yeah. having this moment was a, a small way of saying like, this is just a tiny fraction of what you should get. Yeah. Um, but it was really special to be there. And then everybody wanted to take a picture with her. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to just be there. You know, same with Liz Galloway, who played and then was a coach. And then, you know, Molly, um, Machine, Machine Gun, Gun Molly. Molly. <laughs> <laughs> Which once people watch footage? it and see the stats, they'll be like, no shit, Machine Gun. Holy cow. And, you know, Molly's story, um, becoming a pro player, playing in college and becoming a pro player. But then the battle that she fought, um, they weren't being paid enough. And so she was trying to figure out how to make extra money. And she, she makes these like posters, you know, she's like Farrah Fawcett. She makes these posters and it's used against her to literally like deny her custody of her kid. Mm. You know, a judge says like, is that what a mother should do? Mm. Is that how a mother should look like, what are you talking about? So um, to have these women be, you know, um, NECA, like, you know, does the interview with her and literally says to Molly, like, I'm here because of you. Yeah. And so we we had just had the the ability to have so many of those moments. I will say it was very very satisfying. Good, <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Shout out the ESPNW team. They also had Spinderella DJing, which they had as Spinderella someone, as somebody who performed uh, Salt and Pepper's Shoop at my wedding with my husband on stage with a full band. I was like Spinderella, cut it up one time. <laughs> Nicole, what about you? What's a moment that stood out from that event? Oh, I mean, I, I just want to add on the Wyoming front that, um, that she, she said to me, this has never happened for me before Mm. first time that she had ever felt like that, but what a thing to do, you know, um, to, to, to be a part of, of that moment. And also just the, the sense that you have that, um, there's so many women out there like Wyoming who haven't had that you know, experience. Um, it was, it was really beautiful. And also coach Debbie came from Portland, you know, yeah. Uh, so she's the one who, you know, for 35 years, didn't have a softball field for her girls mm-hmm. finally couldn't take it anymore. Sued, sued under title nine with this like really badass, incredible group of young women who are on her team, um, who agreed to be plaintiffs in their senior year. And, um, and the film itself, um, 
you know, may have nudged potentially um, a little bit of the action on building the it's film. It's not forward. potentially. <laughs> I mean, she says it. Yeah, she goes, there's cameras here. They're either going to film construction happening or construction not happening. And here comes all the cranes and all the, <laughs> the diggers. So yeah, that's what the lawyer, the lawyer actually saw all these like machines descending on the field and like mm-hmm. had to pull over on the side of the road. He was laughing so hard. Um, so he that has was like, here. Get it together. <laughs> they still did not finish the field in time for uh, this coach who retired this year. No. Oh my God. That's so upsetting. On it. But that's part of the whole oh. thing, right? With title nine, yeah. you know, doing it for this, the people who yeah, come after you're you. You're there for four years. You're mm. doing it for the next generation. And so they're, they're I don't like that cool. though. I don't, that's just like, that's too close for her to not to get to experience. I hope there's some kind of, they should do something right for oh, her, but for her to come to should New York. name it after her. I mean, yes. like, really. Okay. Task force number two. <laughs> get the field named after her i'm serious that's very upsetting i was so i was like honestly give her all the awards and then i can't wait for her to get to oh gosh okay uh just a couple more things they're running out of time here i want to know the thing that surprised you most in the process of making the film nicole i mean i think the thing that surprised me the most um and it's sort of silly that it did but is that the whole idea of sexual harassment being something that um you know, it was a violation of Title IX, only came about because young young women pushed for that, right. you know? Um, I just completely would have taken that for granted, you know, or I would have thought that it had been part of the law originally, or I, I just, I, I really didn't have the capacity to imagine that that was something that was, was an innovation by people right at the very beginning of people thinking that sexual harassment was a thing at all. Um, that, that really did, um, did surprise me. And, and I, and, and watching what women go through when they try to advocate for themselves under title nine, how hard it is, um, and how, um, however present, um, the threat of sexual harassment is for, for girls in so many high schools, even today, that was, that probably was the, the thing that surprised me the most. And that I felt was, was so urgent to try to communicate to people. How about you, Dawn? Two things, because um, I can't follow instructions to save my life. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Well-behaved women rarely make history is, I believe, the quote that we trot out here. <laughs> um, I was surprised at how it was really ordinary women who came up with this idea, that it was not some big, grandiose leader type, you know, who was like, this is what we need to do, but it really was a ground up um, swell. And I love seeing the creativity of the women who were just like, you could feel the pits in their stomachs as like each new challenge came up, but you could see them solve them. And, and I just really, really was moved and motivated by that. Cause if you see like Steph Curry dunk, you're like, I can't do that. <laughs> but if you see like somebody on the playground do it, you're like, maybe I could right, do that. Right. And so like seeing these women do that. The other thing that really did surprise me, like really like literally took my breath away was seeing the footage of how men spoke about women yeah. and thinking mm. I was an elementary school girl. I was swimming in that mm-hmm. conversation and I didn't notice. Yep. I didn't notice it. 
I used to watch Howard Cosell. I'm a big sports fan. Who You have to watch Howard Cosell. Mm-hmm. I thought just like my parents thought that he was quirky and charming. And mm-hmm. hearing that, you know, hearing Harry Reasoner say he wanted his boys to be able to touch women as they please. And he was worried about this law was going mm-hmm. too far. A law that says you're equal is too far. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I was really kind of struck by what I hadn't noticed as a girl. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, it never occurred to me to think of like, where did I get this inferiority idea? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? It wasn't my parents, it was my friends. Where was that yeah. coming from? And, and that really affected me. It made me really think like, to point out to my kids, the messages that they may be getting that are not true, that they have to resist. They have to actively acknowledge and resist. And that's the interesting part about talking about Title IX. You mentioned Abby Wambach. She and I are on the Global Sports Mentoring uh, Advisory Board for Gatorade. And we had this conversation in one of our meetings. Is it better to let kids now not be told that it used to be that you were less than or inferior and let them grow up in a better, more evolved space? Or do you run the risk of not teaching them about Title IX and not realizing that it wasn't that long ago that things were not equal? How quickly those things can be taken away if you don't continue to fight for them. Um, I think about Dawn, particularly one of your films called Trapped was about anti-abortion laws um, for abortion providers in the South, what those laws did to affect their attempts to do their work. And you literally had to have police standing guard outside the screenings of that film and checking people for weapons and seeing what the pushback on telling the story of those abortion providers might be. And throughout this Title IX conversation, the last few months, because of the overshadowing of this conversation about Roe v. Wade potentially going away, I keep thinking about that when it comes to other things that feel so secure and so certain when it comes to our rights. And you look at the last administration and Betsy DeVos's efforts to weaken Title IX's ability to help with harassment and rape on campus. And you say you get the wrong people in control and Title IX can go the way of what it looks like Roe is going to as well. So how do you balance, tell the stories, remind people this is something you have to keep fighting for versus don't tell young girls today that there's any reason to believe that they're not good enough or strong enough or the same. You know, I think what Nicole said, we tried really hard to do, which is to not overwhelm people with a depressing story of impossibility. Mm. Um, Because I think, I think it is incumbent upon us um, to make sure people today understand not only that the, that the rights we have were not always, the case, but that regular people fought, saw something they didn't like and fought to change and they were able to do it. So if you see something you don't like, you are able to do something about it um, or you are able to be part of a change. So I think that um, it's important. I want to look, we all would love for our kids to, to have like a seamless, you know, kind of like to have it a little bit easier, but, you know, I think characters made a little bit of struggle. And for me, like the key is to not make it seem impossible to fix. Yeah. Like, I don't want people to be hopeless, but I want, I want them to be clear eyed about what right. could be in their, standing in their way. 
Well, we're learning the importance now. The, the people who don't want us to teach history usually are doing so for the wrong reasons. So finding a way to talk about Title IX and the way things were unequal while simultaneously reinforcing that that was wrong and it changed for a reason. And so you are equal and good enough and should demand these things might be that balance that you're looking for. Because Nicole, I, I, I it certainly sounds like, and I think you guys did find this balance of, um, here's how it started. Here's all the amazing ways it's made things better, but here's why we still need to remember we have it as a tool because the problems of evil haven't gone away. Yeah. I mean, look at even the fact that like, I knew so little about title nine and how it came to be. Like, I think, I think it's true that this time when the very teaching of history itself or civics is so under attack, mm -hmm. you know, there's, it's, it's, um, it really is highlighting the extent to which this information and these stories will disappear. um, If they're not kind Mm -hmm. of, if we're not vigilant about kind of talent, talking about them and keeping them alive, you know? And I, I feel like over the last eight years, I've really, um, come to feel much more strongly about that, that like we really have a responsibility to just kind of like um, constantly be engaging with these ideas because the danger is enormous if we don't, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and the kind of institutional knowledge and memory of the fact that this kind of change is possible is the only thing that's gonna, um, yeah. is gonna get us through. Well, I'm glad you guys are filmmakers instead of authors because uh, no one's banning movies right now. Although I don't want to say that because I might give them some ideas. Don't give them any ideas. I don't want to give Seriously. anyone any ideas. <laughs> yeah. Let's cut this in post. Um, thank you guys so much. I could literally talk to you for hours. Just fascinating, smart, wonderful, brilliant, interesting. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for this film. It's so fantastic. Thank you. Love thank being you. here. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for me to rant, rave, tell you what to read, watch, listen to. Sometimes I'll share a story, whatever's on my mind. And what's on my mind this week is 37 words. Yep, I'm going to tell you again. Tonight, June 21st, parts 1 and 2, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Victoria Arlen and I are going to have a digital streaming convo about the first two parts that's going to run right afterwards, 10 p.m. Eastern on digital. I'll post on my social feed so you can find that. And then next week, Tuesday, June 28th, parts three and four of 37 words, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on ESPN once again. Also, go find that 30 for 30 Dream On doc. Really fascinating stuff. Um, Thanks for listening. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you have guest suggestions, questions, dilemmas, you could always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review. Maybe I'll read it on the next podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 